you could have an amazing car, pick your favorite, you know, sports car, right? Maybe a, maybe it's a Ferrari or a Maserati or whatever your favorite is. You could be an extremely safe driver with that car, or you could be an extremely reckless driver with that car. Right. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, my, I'm the host of today's episode. My name is Etienne Nichols, and today with me is Rob McCuspy from Proxima Clinical Research. So glad to have you back on the show, Rob. Great to be here. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about today's topic because this is one thing you know we talk a little bit about every now and then. We don't always take the subject head on, but that is quality management systems. What is it? When do you implement it? Who is this for? And so forth. So I really appreciate uh, this topic. And uh, I wonder if you want to introduce it a little bit better, or if you, I know you have a lot of thoughts and different points you want to cover, um, but I'll go ahead and let you uh, talk to, well, first your, maybe, maybe a little of your background and then we can jump into the topic itself. Yeah, sure. Um, so I started out as a PhD bench chemist in the national lab system and did a brief stint in academia before getting intrigued by the medical device industry. And I've been in the industry for about eight years now and have done everything from R&D, new product development, director of labs, um, product education. And I kept getting drawn into the regulatory and the quality side. I was really fascinated by it, um, working in the various startups and small businesses. And so uh, a couple of years ago, had the opportunity to join Proxima Clinical Research and really scale my efforts and be a part of a lot of teams. And so really loving it and uh, love working with folks that are bringing new products to market. And for those of you who listen pretty regularly, you probably heard uh, Rob and my episode last week, but last not last week, <laughs> last fall, I believe it was. So we were trying to figure out exactly when that was. I'll have to go back and put a link in the show notes if you want to hear his previous episode. But he has a lot of great experience, and and you know, in this industry, it's it's more about the mileage than it is the years. It seems like, and working with Proxima, I know you see so many companies and get to kind of look at different best practices along the way. So. I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and kind of talking through some of these things. Um, do you want to go ahead and talk? Uh, maybe we can start out with uh, what is a quality management system and we can maybe start there. Yeah. So a quality management system is really the overall set of documentation and processes that are going to ensure that the product has acceptable quality and it's always safe and it's always effective for every single patient or customer that uses the device. And so there's a lot of care that people put into designing and engineering these devices. And a lot of that is documenting, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, why did we make those decisions? You know, why did we set these specifications this way? Why did we design it this way? And then all of that effort that the engineering and design team has put into it, once we want to transfer that to the manufacturing team because they want to make it the same way every time. And they want to know, okay, you know, is this like a three-lane highway that I have to stay within? Or is this like a narrow winding mountain road? I got to be super careful. And so they, you know, they don't know. They didn't do the design. They just want to follow that. And so there's, you know, the tech transfer aspects and the manufacturing. And then there's the post-market surveillance of, 
you know, wanting to know, hey, what's the customer feedback? Does anyone have any, you know, anything that happened that we need to know about and want to know about? And then that way it allows this process of continuous improvement as well so that you can continue to improve the device and, you know, make the next generation, make the next great innovation. So, and, oh yeah, it's the law. We have to follow you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the code of federal regulations, you know, 21 CFR 20 says we have to have one. So yeah, that's another good reason. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And when I first came to MedTech so many moons ago, I wish that I'd had that illustration that you talked about. Yeah, are we on a three-lane highway or, or are we on a mi- windy mountain road? Uh, I've talked about this in the past. The FDA is not going to specify the speed limit. It just tells you the the curves, the radius of the curve, the angle, the the um, you know the friction coefficient of the gravel and or whatever. And you decide based on what you're driving, class three device, class one, so forth, how fast you need to go and and so forth. So I think that's a really good illustration. I like that that you use that. Um, so I'm curious uh, if you want to talk maybe a little bit more. You, you mentioned it's it's the legal requirement, and we talk about ISO 1345, um, Part 820 as well. And and of course, you know, for those of you keeping up with the legal requirements, there's QMSR and the the harmonization with ISO 1345. So it's more important than ever to be thinking on a global scale. So when we're building out a quality management system, there's lots of different questions we could ask, and one of them. That we get asked a lot is when do I need to start? Um, do, do you want to mention or kind of talk to that question? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is one that comes up with a lot of our clients. Um, you know, all right, we love it when uh, we get to work on our partnership and folks are like, okay, we've already got this great EQMS with Green Light Guru. So can you help us, you know, navigate it? There's there's kind of two perspectives I see in when do I start. There's the investor perspective of well let's delay the cost as long as possible and just push it out and you know just at the last possible second have anything. And then there's this FDA perspective of you know innovators are going to have their quality management system in place, have most of the effort done, and then they're going to start their regulatory interactions. And so there's this balance because if something's not written down and documented in a quality management system, it didn't happen in the eyes of the regulators. And so you can choose to do all of this development, but it's kind of like still the back of the napkin stage in a lot of ways, because you don't have anything real yet. So a lot of times I encourage, you know, CEOs, SaaS or investors, well, how long do you want us to go without actually having a real product? Because <laughs> there needs to get to a point where we're going to have a real product, right? Right. And so that that kind of helps find where is that balance. Because you know, obviously, sketching on the back of napkin, you don't need a fully built out QMS yet. Um, but you do want to have documentation of, hey, look, we thought about these different design constraints. Did, you know, like we were talking about earlier with the analogy, do we need a, a three lane superhighway each way, like an interstate highway? Or can we have, you know, a, a winding road that that hugs the grade of, of the terrain? And both are right for different situations, right? And so it's kind of looking through what are the user needs? Why are we making this device in the first place? What problem is it going to solve? And, and then going into a way to document all of that as you go through the process. So you want to capture all of that great work that's going into it and really be able to take credit for it. It, so there's there's a couple things that I think of too when I think of when to start a quality management system, and you kind of touched on this, and I wonder if maybe you could elaborate. But let me kind of de- develop this thought. There's multiple perspectives 
you have when you're building out a company or when you're growing your company or growing your product portfolio, you have the perspective of the legal, the re- the regulatory requirement. So there's there's a hard line. You have to start here. And maybe we could talk about when that hard line is. If and and it may, you know, oftentimes when we ask about hard lines, there's the it depends. And that's a fair answer. We can maybe talk about through those different caveats. But then there's a different perspective besides the the regulatory requirement and the legal requirement. As a business, uh, there's also the the safety and F ethical requirements. So what could build the safest and the most ethically sound product? And then there's the third, that's the monetary. Um, I look at companies, medical device companies, especially as having three legs. You have the regulatory legal requirement, you have the safety and ethical requirement. Oftentimes those overlap, they don't always. And then there's the third one, and that's uh, making money, the economical requirement. And that's really, you know, you look at a quality management system, we think, oh, this is specific to medical device. But ISO 1345, you look in the back, it compares to ISO 9001, right? And uh, yeah. which is a, it, you know, one of the one of the goals is to have best practices for the industry. So, I kind of said a lot there. Thank you for listening to my TED talk. Um, I wonder if you could kind of expound a little bit on what perspective are we looking at this when to start a quality management system and the different thought processes you go through as you as you look through those different lenses. Yeah, so I tend to look at it as earlier is better. And then there's also kind of this idea of making a plan from the beginning of, you know, we don't have to build everything all at once, right? Yeah. You know, that's that's very common in the startup world. Like we're not going to go to scaling up manufacturing and we're still working out the details of the device, right? There's stages that we go through to hit those different milestones. And so similarly to QMS, you can build it just in time and say, okay, we're going to have the early stages like our document control and you know design controls when we're doing the design phases and we can put off some of that manufacturing till we get there then when we get to manufacturing we can still put off some of that you know post-market surveillance type questions to when we get a little bit closer to that stage so you can kind of build it in you know stages so it's kind of delivered just in time as you go through and so that way it allows to capture for me, it's really about capturing the work and not having to repeat things because that's something that you know nobody likes having to do the same thing twice. Yeah, and you know, there's there's the joke like there's never enough time to do it the first time. But there's always enough time to do it right the second time. Um, so for me, it's like, well, you want to be able to show we thought about this, and you know, it's okay if it's not perfect the first time. A lot of times, auditors will say, hey, that shows that you looked at it and then refined it based on that. It shows that continuous improvement is baked into the culture. So, you know, it, from the legal side as well, there's that consideration of, okay, I don't necessarily have to show, you know, my QMS to the FDA to get a 510K, right? They're not going to come in and inspect it. But the the day I've got that 510K clearance and I start selling, an auditor can knock on the door and ask to look back at all those records. And I really don't want to get warning letters because I I was like uh, uh, I think Joe did that three years ago. Uh, <laughs> is he you know he's on vacation this week? Uh, what are we going to do? You know you want to have all of all of that in place and be able to say oh yeah 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 Joe's on vacation this week but here's everything that he did you know and lay it out and then again be able to take credit for all that great work that people are doing and that really hits that safety and and ethical side because you know. By and large, everyone I work with, that's really something that is so ingrained, it's almost not spoken. 
right? It's just kind of almost taken for granted. So I like that you call that out and how important that is. And so, yeah, I, I really think that it's, you know, it depends on a little bit on the culture, depends a little bit on the funding, but I think as early as possible in the design phases to start that QMS, at least with those initial phases, is what I would recommend folks to really consider. Yeah. I look at a quality management system almost like a design project when you're building it out. And so I'd like to dig a little deeper in one of the things you had mentioned earlier, which was that road analogy, three-lane highway versus a windy mountain road. Are you able to draw that or, or, or can you link that directly to a real-world medical device example to kind of give just just maybe just some idea of, am I a three-lane highway or am I, am I this mountain road? Do, do any... Uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but do any examples come to mind to kind of fill that that imaginary gap there? Yeah, well, this is where I think my analogy may break down a little bit, but you know, I'm going to say like if you have a, a class three, you know, device, and you know, let's say that it's um, an implantable device for a medically fragile population, you know, maybe say it's like pediatrics or something. Obviously, there's going to be a lot more care and a lot more scrutiny for those high-risk class three devices. Um, so there's going to need to be a lot of attention paid. There's going to be a lot more documentation in the system because there's going to be a lot more testing and a lot more review, you know, clinical trials, probably multiple clinical trials, especially if it's innovative. You're going to have a first in human before you go into, you know, a, a pivotal trial. So in, in that perspective, um, because I could make the argument that the winding mountain road is is dangerous in its own way compared to the three lane highway at the highway speeds, right? So that's where I think my analogy breaks down a little uh, bit. <laughs> but let's say um, a, res uh, a a quiet, slow road, maybe not through residential, but just like a quiet, you know, back road, um, maybe through the woods. That might be a little bit safer, right? So that might be more like your class two or your class one type devices where okay, you know, like we know that um, like an adhesive bandage is not nearly as high risk as say, you know, like a, a, a pediatric implant, like we were talking about earlier. So, you know, but that doesn't mean that we don't care about the safety or the efficacy of that device, because I know a lot of, you know, adhesive bandages, they look at the inks that they use and they do the biocompatibility testing to make sure that it's safe. You know, if they're going to put, um, you know, new types of inks and new colors because it's the new um, design that they're putting out, you know? I mean, I might want to see, uh, you know, soccer players on my bandage. Um, somebody else <laughs> may want to see Disney characters. I don't know, right? So, but they still have that same level of care and concern um, that's appropriate for that level of the device. So that's where I think, you know, the the analogy is that you you think about what's that intended use? How does it fit into the regulations? And how's my quality management system going to support that? So there's a little bit of nuance with that too, because some of the lower risk devices are um, what they call GMP exempt. And okay. so it's not automatically all class one devices are GMP exempt. You really have to look into your specific product code and where it would fall and what that intended use is and what the FDA has decided. Um, but even with GMP exempt, that like a lot of government terminology, it's a little bit misleading. Um, it doesn't mean you're exempt from having anything at all. It means you're exempt from 
100% of the requirements okay. of Part 820. It means there are some things that you can omit. Um, however, when you really get into the weeds, um, some things at first look like you can you don't have to do them. And then when you come around to the back end, it's like, oh, but I need it for this other requirement over here. So did I really, <laughs> did I really get out of a lot? Get out of a little bit. You know? Yeah. So uh, is it safe to say if you are a medical device company, class one to class three, you do need to define your approach to quality. And maybe this kind of strikes at the heart of what truly is a quality management system versus what we sometimes call a QMS. And I don't know if you want to speak to that. Uh, and I don't mean to speak cryptically. We can talk more if you, you like. What are your thoughts? Well, I, so yeah, this is this is a good point about nomenclature because I hear folks use like QMS, and I'm even guilty of this myself. I'll say like an eQMS, and I'm referring to the electronic system that is supporting the quality management system. And it's also the people and the processes that are going into it, right? And so there's there's document management and i hear people talk about well i'm just going to have my document management system and and believe it or not as recently as you know 5 years ago i was working in a company that used pen and paper and locked filing cabinets and <laughs> you know everything had wedding signatures and you know for them that works good for them um you know I, I like to think about, you know, I grew up watching a lot of uh, cartoon shows and reruns of the kids. So it's like, okay, do I want to live like the Flintstones or do I want to live like the Jetsons? You know, <laughs> I'm aspiring for the Jetsons. Um, you know, I don't have my flying car yet, but, you know, self-driving cars might be around the corner. So, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where there, there are document management systems and they support the quality management system. And there's the overarching set of processes that go into it as well. So it's it's not just, okay, I've got everything accessible. That's a part of it. It's to me, one of the most important parts of a quality management system is the people. Um, this is, it, we're kind of talking about, you know, hey, what do we think the most important part is beforehand? And so I, I it really inspired me because the, the people to me are really what makes the quality management system because you can have a culture of, hey, look, we're all committed to this. We want to make this right and we want to get the job done right. And it's almost like I looked at it as like it's a safety net because I've, you know, like if I'm working at heights, I might have like a harness and I'm strapped onto something so I don't fall off the edge. Right. I mean, there's a reason I don't work in height construction because I probably would. So <laughs> but I've got, you know, my quality management people. The, the QA and QC folks, they're they're like my safety harness. Like if if I forgot to you know sign something or forgot to you know you know do something a certain way, they're going to come back and say like, hey, did you mean to do that or do you need to go back and fix that? And so it's it's like a safety net, you know, it's like safety harness for me. And so to me, the people is is one of the most important parts, and I think that's often. Um, overlooked or taken for granted because we get so focused on what's the actual process we're going to follow how are we going to do this you know we get into the weeds of the design choices and how do we document it we get into the weeds of how are we going to test it to make sure that it's working the way we wanted it to and there's there's a human element involved in all of that so i'm kind of curious you know your perspective too about what what you think some of the most important parts of a qms are yeah, that's a good question. And yeah, we were kind of throwing this back and forth, but we reserved uh, the answer until we're actually recording. So get to surprise each other here. So that's really good. I agree that without the people, I mean, you don't have anything. 
And uh, but I would go maybe one step further. So I'm going to yes and it's the people, but uh, yes, it's the people. And specifically in my mind, it's the management. And the reason I say that is management responsibility. When I look at the overall, uh, just the 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 overall part eight twenty and the different requirements and and the and uh, res- responsibilities there, management responsibility is what drives the quality all the way down to the lowest level. And I don't know, you know, it, this, it should not be this way. It's kind of like economics. You know, th- there's a, if you put something on a spreadsheet, you say, okay, this should work. But then in real life, why does it break down? Well, people are incentivized in certain ways. And I don't mean to draw this to money, but let's go back to the management illustration that I would use is if management is committed to one thing and the people are committed to something else, who usually wins in that scenario? Typically, eventually, Whatever management is is committed to is what plays out in the end because we all are kind of uh, you know we're, we're in this together, but at the same time they're driving the ship. So I I definitely agree with what you said. I think I'm just going to yes and 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 emphasize that management responsibility section. To me that that really is if that isn't in, in line, nothing else is going to matter because nothing else is really going to to truly um, work. I don't know what are your thoughts. I really like that because I don't want to get too much into leadership philosophy, but there is definitely a responsibility of management to set the culture of an organization. And so, yes, in terms of setting priorities and setting goals for the organization and then walking the walk as well as talking the talk, that that really helps set the culture for the organization. And so having that flow from the top, yes, absolutely is is critical. In addition to, yeah, there's management review board activities that have to take place and as as they should, because you want the people at the top who are, you know, accountable for this to to know what's going on and to have visibility to this and be asking those hard questions of, is this the best we can do? Right. So this this is really good. I have another question though, maybe specifically about software as a medical device, because a lot of times I don't know. I'm, I don't know what your perspective is. My perspective of the industry recently, in recent years anyway, is we have a lot of software developers coming into the medical device industry, and they say, "Okay, this is cool. You are you're all medical device people, but we're software." And then we have a lot of medical device people going into the software industry saying, okay, we have to slow things down and do it this way. And I'm being very over generalistic and it's not probably not hundred percent true in any one case, but just kind of as an average, this seems to be the case. There's an influx of software developers who are looking around saying, why are we going at this pace? Why is there so much documentation needed? And maybe it's rightfully so, but what are the differences? Are there any differences between a medical device company, just a standalone physical product and a software as a medical device company when it comes to the quality management system. What are your thoughts? So on one level, there's not differences because they're still going to make sure their product is designed safely and effectively. They're still going to test it to make sure that it works. On another level, there is the difference because how you test software is completely different than how you manufacture a physical artifact. Now, obviously, companies that have both hardware and software elements to their products are going to have to do both of those. So if you're software as a medical device, yeah, you don't have to fill out details on all of those manufacturing SOPs and and subparts of 820, but you do still have to have at least one little, you know, uh, SOP in there to address, hey, we don't actually do physical manufacturing, therefore, love us, we don't have to do it. 
<laughs> I'm stealing that phrase from my colleague, Michelle. I, I love that phrase. So, <laughs> um, and so, yeah. And, and so there's, there are savings and efficiency gains. I don't want to discount those. And at the same time, there's a lot of documentation that um, is not up to the 21 CFR part 11 with the traditional software industry from what I've found. You know, just having a ticketing system is not always a way that is suitable to document, here's every change that I made, here's how I did my design controls, here's how I did, you know, these different aspects. So it it's a helpful tool, but it may not be everything that is needed. And so there's there's a lot of, okay, well, there was the spirit of these things from the industry I'm coming from. And I need to add a little bit onto that. So I think it's, I, I've seen that tension as well, kind of like the caricatures of like, let's let's go at lightning speed versus, no, we've got to really slow down. And I think there's a healthy friction there because it reaches a good compromise. I would also say that there's been a lot of um, concern expressed by the industry about, can the regulations keep up with the pace of innovation in the software field? Um, I would propose that that's always going to be a challenge because <laughs> yeah. government is by its nature, not going to be able to move as fast as innovative startups. So the, the folks that are on that, you know, leading edge of the wave of the innovation are probably always going to be frustrated in some sense that there's not enough clarity of, okay, but there's a cookie cutter approach of what I have to follow. It's like, well, but there's not a cookie cutter approach or something innovative and disruptive either. Right. So <laughs> It's part of the it's part of the price of admission into that world. Yeah, you mentioned something about the the government and maybe not being able to to move as quickly. And for those of us who wish they would, so that my software or whatever could move faster, I, I really recommend thinking about that very long and hard. Do you want the government to move as fast as you do? Because then you're going to be yanked around in different ways. You'll always be dealing with multiple changes. We already are dealing with a lot of changes, but can you only imagine if they moved as fast as you know? Uh, maybe a software company, we that'd be tough. Um, so one of the things that I think about when I think about those regulations changing is fully understand why it's there. What's the your regulations in themselves are boring, but the history that led to that regulation is rarely boring. It's usually pretty interesting. What in the world happened to to cause someone to ask to you know to add radiological to the CDRH? You know, that's there's that whole foot. I wish I had the actual, you know, the the um, the foot store where you were stuck. Okay, I'm going off, you know, off script here. So let's move back. But uh, look that story up. Um, it's very interesting. Some of the things that require that that led to these regulations. But I say all that to say, fully understand why the regulation is there. You may actually be meeting it in some way, or um, and maybe you can speak to this. You know, if you, if you already do certain amount of verification testing on your software, maybe you're already meeting that IQOQPQ requirement, or Maybe only minor modifications to uh, to your change control could could uh, could meet the requirement. I don't know if you've seen some of that or have any examples. Um, love love to hear you expound on that if possible. Yeah. So um, yeah, the, a lot of great comments there. I'm kind of like, which one do I want to oh, uh, jump on first? Yeah. So like yeah. from the from the from the regulation perspective, there's there's absolutely I agree with that. You don't want the government to try to anticipate where things are going to go because it can lead to situations. I saw this with, um, I was in the nanomaterial space some number of years ago and Europe got very aggressive with regulations and the US was kind of lagging. And so people were going, 
well, I want to know what the U.S. is going to think, but I don't want Europe because they're telling me to do things I don't want to do. And so it's there's rarely... I had a buddy in the Coast Guard who said, yeah, it's one size fits all, three sizes too small. And, <laughs> you know, it's, and, and so a lot of times asking for those regulations, like you pointed out, can be a little bit hazardous. But to that point, um, when the companies come in with that approach to the safety and the ethical perspective and the commitment to making it effective, there's already documentation in place and they're already using tools that's like a great platform. And so it might meet the spirit or even be above and beyond that spirit in some cases but there's like this little it seems like a little thing compared to the spirit of it but it can trip everything up downstream and so it's one of those things like um you know how how, maybe an example might be like if i didn't use grammarly and i'm using there 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 incorrectly it kind of waters down the credibility of everything else that i've done right and so it's it's a little thing compared to the heavy intellectual lift of the story in the document, but you don't want to lose that. It's the same kind of thing with the cultures there and the stories there. It's just the grammar's not quite perfect. So having to help edit that, it's a lot easier of a lift and it's a lot easier of a culture shift because it's kind of like, oh, okay, we were doing it this way. And it's like a subtle tweak versus like, you know, oh my gosh, um, I don't have time for my designers to write down what they're doing because we won't hit our milestones. It's like, but if you don't write it down, you don't have a product. So you're still not hitting your milestone. So maybe we want to rethink this a little bit. Um, And then kind of, you know, talking about, hey, people are already doing a great job. That's where, and I know we talked about this on the um, DeNovo podcast and not wanting to be afraid of DeNovos. That's where I go, hey, if you're doing something really innovative, don't be afraid of the de novo because you can now set the standard for this new product code, this new technology the FDA hasn't seen before that other people may try to copy and make their own version of. You get to work with the agency and say, here's the special control that everybody else in this space needs to follow, the testing they need to do. And it's not like a, you know, lockout barrier to entry for the competition, but you are kind of setting the bar they have to jump over. So um folks are interested in that there's there's a lot of other thoughts out there on that (laughs) yeah and i was thinking that just as you were speaking i was trying to think of an example too and i thought maybe labeling would be a good one for software as a medical device i don't know if you want to touch on that but um i know we mentioned qmsr qmsr early in the harmonization with iso 1345 i believe it's part 820.45 in the proposal because they didn't feel like uh the fda did not feel like fd uh ISO was strict enough with labeling. So they have a certain section. And I know a software is a medical device. They may think uh, labeling, I don't have a physical product. I'm going to put a label on it, but it is still something that applies to you. And so this is one of those things you may be meeting, but uh, you know how you're meeting it just may be minor tweaks and you can be, you know, not only fulfilling the spirit of the law, but the letter as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, labeling is a really interesting one too. And I really enjoy it because there's a lot of aspects to labeling that FDA considers that are not obvious from that title, right? We think of label as like what's on the carton on the shelf mm. at you know, the local drugstore. And that's where software companies are like, but I don't have a label. I don't have a carton. But all of the marketing claims on the website and in advertisements are considered labeling. If there's an instructions for use document, that's considered labeling, um, in addition to obviously what's on the carton. So there's there's a, a broader impact, you know, claims that are made in conversations at trade show, right? Um, that is labeling because it's part of the marketing materials. So 
the FDA does have an interest and jurisdiction over those marketing claims. So that's where it's there really is going to be labeling for every device out there because folks are going to want to communicate how great this is. And there's obviously some boundary conditions of what can be said and what can't based on the testing that backs it up and based on uh, the context that is presented in and the audience that's being presented to. So there's, there's a lot of really interesting nuance in that labeling question. And for those of you who are wondering how, okay, I thought we were talking about quality management system. I actually have a just had a thought to tie this back because you mentioned people being kind of the foundation of the quality management system. By extension, training and fully understanding that quality management system is going to be very important. It's one of those management responsibilities, making sure everybody has adequate resources, adequate understanding of your approach to quality. Um, you mentioned that that off-label use or dissemination of information. One thing you mentioned was social media. I mean, Twitter, liking Liking someone talking about your off-label use, if they are you know promoting off-label use and, and an employee of your company just liking that, giving it the thumbs up could land you in some hot water. So really having a cohesive understanding of your approach to the labeling, the dissemination, all this stuff is very interesting and it's very tied into your quality management system as well. So yeah, we think of it as like a Venn diagram. There's some things that are clearly regulatory. There's some things that are clearly quality. And then there's a lot that overlaps in that Venn diagram. And labeling is one of those because we helped a lot of clients make their marketing SOPs so that they can train their marketing staff and really all of their staff on, like you said, like, hey, you can't just go home and like, you know, Aunt Betty's post on, hey, uh, this supplement cured my cancer. It's like, well, okay, maybe it did for you. But as the supplement company, they can't go out there and like that because they're now making a drug claim Mm -hmm. that hasn't gone through the appropriate clinical trials at that point. And it's a big risk for the company. I made an extreme example to illustrate the point, but it, you know, it can get into um, things that seem less serious, but are just as black and white in the eyes of um, the enforcement agents. And so, yeah, having that quality management system to say, look, we are documenting people. It de-risks it. It de-risks that risk for the company. And it helps bring people together in that cohesive culture. They feel more confident in what they can say and what they can't say in the context. Um, and it gives you that control that, hey, you know, just like you put the thought into the marketing, just like you put the thought into the engineering, there's there. And now we're helping scale that for everybody so that they all get the same thing. That's where the quality management system, again, the documentation, the processes, the people, all of it rolled into one is really going to work well when all of that comes together. Yeah. And and all of these things, traceability to this, to that, uh, that that is very key. That's one of the foundational pillars in my mind of a quality management system. And so I might ask you the question, how does one start a quality management system or QMS? Do I just open a Google Doc and start typing? What are your uh what are the best practices? What are the best companies doing? Yeah. So the, the best companies, like I alluded to earlier, are going to have a plan when you go into it. So approximately we help clients develop what we call a QMS roadmap. Um, you can tell certain analogies that we like. Uh, so <laughs> it's the idea of, like we were talking about earlier, what needs to be built when for that company, for where they are in their process and their goals. So um, if their software is a medical device company, that's going to look a little bit different, say, than a, a pure physical device company or versus something that's integrated. So, you know, how do I go about starting it? You make the plan, you identify how I'm going to do document control as a company? Um, How am I going to 
you know, what people are going to need to be involved. I got a responsibility matrix who's going to cover what bases, if you will, and make that plan. Now I can kind of sit down and say, okay, now I open my Google Doc and start typing and work on the draft with my colleagues. And now we're going to route it through our document control system once we're finalized and sign off on it, do the trainings, get that going. Oh yeah, we got to do training SOPs and records. Okay, let's do that. You know, <laughs> all of the things, right? Um, and so, but hey, you know what? We can push some of these things off till we hit another milestone. And so that really helps um, people sit down with the how of how to go and build it out. Um, you know, just like just like you talked about with an engineering design process, right? It, we have to kind of have a little bit of the end in sight and we have to know what are the steps we're going to take along the way. And there'll be a little bit of learning along the way. And that's that's why quality management systems and document control allows for revisions in the process. So, yeah. 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 And just just kind of to torture that metaphor a little bit, um, you know, the design controls process, when you think about it, starts with user needs in part 820.30 anyway, you start with those user needs, go to design inputs and so forth. So when I say I look at a QMS as kind of a design project, what does your company need? And and not only, so you look at these different perspectives, who's going to be interacting with my quality management system? Obviously, the employees are probably number one. Your company, that's who it's really for. But most of the time, we make number one, the notified body or the inspector who's going to come in and look at it. Now, that's obviously important, but they are not the ones who are using those every single day. Those plainly written SOPs, should the, the, the shows, those should be designed for employee um, the employees in mind, at least this is my, you know, correct me, you know, where you think uh, maybe should change, but then you're those coming in and auditing you. What are your thoughts? I think if you, I kind of have a really high aspirational goal. Yeah. If I can train, if my SOPs and training process can bring in somebody that has no experience and they can hit the ground running, I'm not worried if the auditor has any experience now in my space, right? Because I now have everything in place to show somebody how, how they can teach themselves and learn and get up to speed and walk through the process. Now, obviously it's not going to capture hundred percent of everything, but if I'm writing things in a clear manner, then, you know, okay, maybe if it's somebody in a chemistry lab, they have to have a certain basic level of chemistry understanding is written for that. But if I'm not requiring folks to have a chemistry degree that are going to go work in the chemistry lab, then my SOPs better teach them enough of that chemistry that they need to know. And so, you know, if I've got trained people, they can explain that to the auditors. Auditors that are examining a company that has chemistry elements have probably seen that before. They may not be experts in that particular type of chemistry. They're probably not because they see so many things, but they can pick it up pretty quickly if you've got all of that training in there for someone that has a reasonable level of experience. So I, I feel like it kind of can hit both of those goals if it's really well written. Um, and yeah, the, the people that use it every day are your team, are the people that are working at the company. Or in some cases, people have contract design firms or contract manufacturers. And depending on the level of oversight that you want or need, you want to make sure that they can come in and do what you're asking them to do. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've kind of talked a little bit about the SOPs, the specifics of them. Um, there's two different things. When I think of document control, I think of document control maybe part 820.40, I believe it is, document control, where it talks about what or kind of defines document control. But when we look at medical device companies, there's usually a document control department. There's a document control, the technology we use to control our documents, whether it's a filing cabinet or a password protected you know, server of some sort. 
can we talk about a little bit about the technological side, whether it's paper versus um, electronic, and 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 what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I mean, the the paper side's fairly intuitive, I think, for most people, and everyone's aware of the cumbersome nature of it. Um, you know, especially with remote and distributed workforces this day and age, you know, mailing documents back and forth. Um, I don't know, maybe carrier pigeons might be faster, but um, it's just, it's not efficient for the way we do business today. So having electronic options is great. Um, there can be kind of these hybrid things where maybe I've got part 11 compliant e-signatures and then we all e-sign a PDF for our routing. And then we have a secure way to store that on servers that are password protected and the read-write access is controlled so that it's always the current versions. And that's kind of like a digital equivalent of the binder on the manufacturing floor with the paper SFPs. So there's kind of that middle ground, but then what's usually most easy is for people to work with is an integrated system that handles the digital signatures, that handles the document control, serves you the most current version when you're looking for it. So you don't have to worry about, is that paper copy outdated or <laughs> is that file outdated? You know, it hasn't been updated in two years. I can't believe it. It's as innovative as we are, right? Well, maybe it has just, no need to change, <laughs> right? Um, so you know you're 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 able to have more confidence in that. Um, and so yeah, there's there's a need for document control, especially as companies grow, because the number of documents is going to increase. And so being able to manage that efficiently um, really adds value to the organization. Um, and so then the tools that support those folks are are just as important. A question we get asked a lot is, well, but hey, my Google Docs tracks, you know, who made what edits to this document? Well, don't, why do I need anything else? And the short answer is it's not compliant with Part 11. <laughs> <laughs> um, the longer answer is to make it compliant with Part 11, you probably have to do so much work that you would rather pay to have a solution off the shelf. <laughs> right. So, you know, it, it, most people I have found prefer to do that approach. Um, not to say it can't be done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I ran through, so I used to just kind of mention a little bit about part 820.40 when I talk about document control, the requirements. I mean, it's very simple when you really look at it. It's only a couple paragraphs long. Go read it. I definitely recommend people to do that. But essentially it's, you're saying, why did Rev A go to Rev B? Who who said this was okay? Who approved this change? And what on what date did they change it? So when you say, okay, well, Google Doc, you know, they, they track all my changes. It doesn't really say why you did that. It doesn't justify those changes and uh, give a um, departmental approval or, you know, just the impacted areas approval. So there's a couple things lacking there. And uh, like you said, it's that, uh, that would be, that's interesting. I've never really thought about how would I make that part 11 compliance? So it would be a big job. Um, so that being said, uh, what are some of, I don't know, what are some of the best companies doing? Well, Actually, let me back up a little bit. Sorry, I was about to go down another TED Talk and I don't want to do that. Uh, what about the bigger companies who they're set in their ways? Maybe they, so we kind of start, we, we could look at companies who have who just, maybe I want to get something off the ground. I've got a new product and so forth, but we look at a bigger company because I've actually worked at Fortune 500 companies that are still working on paper. Maybe their actual SOPs are bloated because they're trying to cover both biologic and medical devices. How do I trim those down? What, what about the other spectrum? Because we do work with a lot of larger companies and how do those, how do we help them get to the best place? Yeah. So that's a great question because making a QMS efficient for the organization is, is a big challenge and a continuing challenge. 
I like to think of a structure for how I'm going to design things kind of in almost like a pyramid. So I've got SOPs that are kind of overarching to the whole organization. And then I might have SOPs that are specific to, say, certain pieces of manufacturing equipment or certain tools, certain analytical equipment in the laboratory for QC release. And so I've got kind of, okay, this is how to use those tools. And then I've got a process. And then I don't have to update every SOP that uses my calipers when I want to make a measurement because I've got that one SOP over here. I can reference, hey, you know, use caliper measurements and reference the SOP. And then I can have the process of like, okay, now I'm thinking about that process. I want to mix these two things together, you know, put them in a mold, compress them, whatever. And then I'm going to make my measurement that's the right size and I'm good to go to the next step. So there's, there's ways to think about how to focus the scope of those SOPs and not try to make it be so all encompassing at that broad level that, okay, I'm trying to do for devices, something that only applies to biologics but I didn't quite think about the SOP and the scope and and applicability quite right. And so now I'm cascading that down. And so that kind of can create some bloat, right? It can create, um, well, I've got to do all of these things for everything when maybe I don't have to do that for everything, everything, maybe just some things, maybe it's 50% some things, but you know. Yeah. Well, what about, um, so that that makes a lot of sense from the content side of your uh, quality management system. We talked about the other side, the document management side, uh, or the the document control. I don't know whichever you want to look at this. The actual tool you're using, whether it's paper or a server on your own, you know, physical drive, or or however you want to handle the electronic side. How do companies, instead of taking that leap, you know, maybe a big company that it's going to take a while to change their tools, they recognize we're in a sad situation from a technological perspective. We're still using paper. We're still using Google Docs and Dropbox and DocuSign. How do they, instead of taking the leap and just trying to make a quick switch, how do you get that boat up next to the dock? Is there a phased approach where you can say, okay, for this limited amount of time, we're going to use this existing system, but we are also moving over here. How does that work? Any thoughts? Yeah, there there are ways to explore some creative solutions like that for sure. Um, you know, you can you can look at some creative ideas to try to set some boundary conditions and some scopes and say, all right, we're gonna say at the highest level, we now have the flexibility to choose A or B during our transition period, right? Maybe we intend to transition. And so now we're gonna focus on we're transitioning maybe this business unit or you know, some compartment that makes sense for the organization and move that part over and kind of get comfortable and familiar with it and then roll it out in a more broad context. Um, again, maybe in a staged approach like we were talking about earlier because ah. resources are always limited, right? Um, there, there may be some creative ways to look at opportunities to do that. Um, you know, Obviously, it's one of those things though, the longer that a hard task is put off, it's it's going to continue to rack up debt, right? So I, I always look at it as like, okay, how long do I put off my QMS if I'm a startup? Well, every day I don't do today's work. Now, tomorrow I got to do two days. And then next week I got to do five days. Well, six really, because I got to do Monday's work too, and all of last week's. And then it, it just continues to pile up. In the same way, it's like, well, we can't afford to do this 
can we afford not to do this is the other question. And that's, that's a question that again, has to be answered by management. There's a lot of considerations in there. Um, and, and one of the concerns I've heard is what if we make mistakes in the switchover process? How do we ensure that? And again, there's, there's ways to address those concerns and make sure that there's the right checks and balances in place without it being burdensome um, to migrate it over. And depending on how much effort people can put into it, it can be a great time to look for some of those content efficiencies in addition to just the, the document control efficiencies that can be gained. I definitely agree that Parkinson's law is in full effect when you're trying to make a big change like this. The amount of work does expand to fill the amount of time you give it. So, you know, the uh maybe not taking a leap, but like you said, a staged approach makes makes sense to me. That being said, what about um some of the 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 returns on investment from a regulatory standpoint? So the the, the argument might be made that okay, we are where we are. Well, we've been here a while. It is kind of what it is. Do regulatory agencies look more favorably on a more advanced quality management system, and what or or why would they if it if that were the case? Maybe they don't, you know. But what are what are your thoughts from a pre market submission perspective? There's there's not a lot of concern on on that front as long as it's meeting the requirements. Sure. They, you know, it, it kind of goes back to that conversation we're having a little bit earlier in the podcast about they're not going to dictate to you that you have to do it a certain way. They're going to say, here's the requirements. You figure out how you're going to go meet them. Now, that said, you could have an amazing car, pick your favorite, you know, sports car, right? Maybe a maybe it's a Ferrari or a Maserati or whatever your favorite is. You could be an extremely safe driver with that car, or you could be an extremely reckless driver with that car. Right. Yeah. So they're they're kind of looking at how are you driving as much as okay, well, is the car safe to be on the road? You know, it could be, you know, the 2003 <laughs> car yeah. that I learned to drive on if it's still road safe, you know. Okay. The thing that the thing that it makes me think of, you guys you talking there, um I was kind of thinking back in my experience with FDA inspections in a paper-based system versus something else. And I can remember, okay, the back room, we always talk about the war room, um, the war room where they're up front, they're talking to the inspectors. There's maybe two or three people there in the back room with the paper, because they are going to those filing cabinets, those vaults, maybe requesting things from Iron Mountain, which is a legitimate uh, thing. You know, when, when you ship those off after a few years, uh, that may be 10 or 12 people in that back room, depending on the size of your company. And thinking about how much time they're spending not doing something else that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big uh, resource lift or drain. And so one of the things that I think, because I think you're right, who cares what, you know, the, the FDA probably doesn't care what kind of quality management system you have. They care about the results. They care about how you're driving it. Are you able to get me this document in time? Are you able to get me the right document? Is it traceable to other things? That's where the rubber hits the road in my mind, to, again, to torture the metaphor of driving. <laughs> yeah. So um, we're going to drive it into the ground. Sorry for the Let's do it. And but... <laughs> yeah, if you, I've got more time too. If you've got, I don't want to take up all your time, but this has been fun. Keep going. Yeah. If you, yeah. yeah, I've got a few more minutes. So, um, but yeah, it's one of those things where, yeah, audit preparation, you know, you described a really good audit preparation process. You've got the people that are interacting with the auditors and asking for exactly what it is that they're looking for and trying to understand both what they're asking and maybe, maybe what they're looking for isn't what they're asking directly for yet, right? Because sometimes they'll mm. pull on the thread to unravel the whole sweater. 
Um, and so understanding, okay, like you say, with that traceability, yes, we've got this, and then they're going to ask for this and this. So let's get the folks ready. If you've got a large company and lots and lots of products, you know, I've heard of some companies having over a hundred audits a year between ISO and FDA and other agencies. So, I mean, now you're talking about, again, whole teams that are basically just dedicated to doing nothing but audits, you know, what, what else could that team be freed up to do to contribute to the quality of the organization if they could do that job more efficiently? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great question and and one that I think those large organizations, you know, probably should look carefully at. Yeah, that's a great point. I I don't want to take up all your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. I do want to give you a chance, though. Can do do you have any uh, closing statements and where can people find you? Sure. Um, I, I guess my closing thought is that um, I love that quote attributed to Peter Drucker that culture eats strategy for breakfast um, and all the variations of it. So, you know, having that culture from the top, like we were talking about, I like your analogy there of focusing on the people, focusing on the mission, focusing on we want this to be safe and effective. We want everybody to live better, healthier lives. That's why we're doing this and bringing that all together. Um, that really encompasses the quality system. It meets the regulations that are required and and it really creates a strong organization and it builds the reputation of the brand and it helps people feel good about what they're doing. So there's a lot of opportunities for quality management systems to be more than just a filing cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's my TED talk for what it can be. Um, yeah, I, I'm. you can email me. Um, it's rob.mccuspy at proximacro.com. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, feel free to reach out to me there. Um, you can find me on the Proxima website. We'll put some links in the show notes, I guess. And uh, yeah, look forward to talking to anyone that wants to learn more about this. Rock on. We'll definitely put those links in the show notes. So those of you who've been listening, we'll go go check those out. He has a name. His last name is a little like mine. There's probably multiple ways to spell it. So um, we'll put those links to make it a little bit easy for everybody. Rob, thank you so much for being on the show. Everybody, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. We look forward to next time. We'll all see you all later. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out and let us know either on LinkedIn or I'd personally love to hear from you via email. Uh, Check us out. If you're interested in learning about our software built for MedTech, whether it's our document management system, our CAPA management system, the design controls risk management system, or our electronic data capture for clinical investigations, this is software built by MedTech professionals for MedTech professionals. You can check it out at www.greenlight.guru or check the show notes for a link. Thanks so much for stopping in. Lastly, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us. It lets us know how we're doing. We appreciate any comments that you may have. Thank you so much. Take care.